National Trust Magazine, Autumn 2022. Hello and welcome to the Autumn issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, events and features. Before we do that, I'd like to let you know that your National Trust magazine is now also available in a large print format. If you'd like to order a free copy, please email businesslink at rnib.org.uk or call 01733 375 370. Social campaigner and philanthropist Octavia Hill cared deeply about helping people to get out into fresh air and open spaces, whoever they were and whatever their background. It was one of the main reasons she co-founded the Trust more than 125 years ago, and we're still committed to her vision today. This year, plans first announced in 2019 to help bring more green spaces to UK towns and cities have been really coming to life. In track four, we hear how the Trust has been working with partners to create six beautiful gardens on an old railway viaduct in industrial Manchester. They're newly open, so do come and enjoy them if you can. We hope the viaduct will eventually form one of many green corridors across the country to help link urban centres to the countryside beyond. And in track seven, we hear from those who are helping to remove some of the barriers people can feel to getting outdoors. Indoors, enjoy how music and sounds bring the history of a country house to life in track five. Take a peek at some of the quirkiest objects in the Trust's collections in track eight and hear from historian Neil McGregor about his inaugural Octavia Hill lecture in October in track six. Here's Glenn McCready, Neka Okoye and Olivia Vinnell to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. Thanks to £6.2 million funding from the Hamish Ogston Foundation, the Trust is launching a new apprenticeship programme to build expertise in heritage crafts. The new partnership scheme will help train 34 apprentices over nine years in stonemasonry or carpentry and joinery, skills that have seen a sharp decline in recent decades. The Hamish Ogston Foundation is dedicated to supporting heritage, health and music. Heritage skills professionals will train the apprentices at 12 places in trust care, including Cotille in Cornwall and Fountains Abbey in North Yorkshire. The development of expert craftspeople takes time and investment, so alongside gaining a level 2 or 3 qualification through the government scheme, each individual will also benefit from a trust one-year post-apprentice work placement to put their training into practice. The programme is open to people of all ages, but is particularly targeted at young people to provide them with lifelong employment opportunities. Four unsigned acts have recorded original music at Paul and Mike McCartney's former home of 20 Forthlin Road in Liverpool, 60 years since the Fab Four's career was launched by music written there. The artists composed their own songs inspired by the iconic band and performed them at the birthplace of the Beatles. 30 of the band's songs were originally written and rehearsed at the house, now cared for by the Trust. A five-year conservation project is breathing new life into the heathland of Brown Sea Island in Dorset, improving prospects for rare wildlife. Heathland and Woodland Restoration Works, in partnership with Dorset Wildlife Trust and with funding from the government's countryside stewardship scheme, will expand pockets of heathland and link them up. This will benefit the island's wildlife, including the water vole, Britain's fastest declining mammal. 
More people can now enjoy visiting Port Stewart Strand in County Londonderry, thanks to work carried out by the May Murray Foundation in partnership with the National Trust to make the beach more accessible. An equipment loan scheme is now available for beach wheelchairs and beach walking frames, together with a disabled toilet to changing places standard. The new facilities have made the beach accessible to those with mobility, sensory and other needs, very often for the first time. Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent is hosting a new 18-month scholarship to cultivate the gardeners and head gardeners of the future. The Sissinghurst Scholarship is funded by donations and legacies. It's the National Trust's first scholarship in a horticultural qualification and focuses on the horticultural practices of the garden's creators, writer Vita Sackville-West and her husband, author and diplomat, Harold Nicholson. Scholars will get the opportunity to work at other prestigious gardens, as well as Sissinghurst, both within the Trust and externally. The largest known painting by John Constable depicts the opening of Waterloo Bridge in London in 1817. It's recently returned to hang once more in Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire, following 270 hours of conservation to transform its faded appearance. Conservators at the Trust's Royal Oak Foundation Conservation Studio in Kent removed layers of varnish from the picture, which shows the Thames before Victorian development. It now forms part of an exhibition, Constable Revealed, at Anglesey Abbey until the 31st of October. Mimicking a centuries-old tradition, heavy horses are helping to care for woodland at 19th-century Scotney Castle in Kent. In place of modern machinery, Real horses are being used to clear timber removed through coppicing, a woodland management method that stimulates tree growth and improves wildlife habitats. They're a lighter alternative to tractors, so they cause less damage to the land and surrounding trees, and they have a smaller carbon footprint. The timber is used for biomass fuel and fencing and playground materials. The National Trust's members are vital in helping us care for the places that matter to us all, and we can only continue to look after them with your support. That's why it's so important that you get to have your say on how the organisation is run and what we are doing. The annual general meeting is a chance to do just that. You can find out what the Trust has achieved in the last year with your support and what our plans are for the future. The next AGM will be held on Saturday the 5th of November at the Assembly Rooms in Bath in Somerset and is open for members to register their interest in attending. Attendance may be limited. You can vote on members' resolutions on a range of topics that shape how the Trust operates, hear from the Director-General and other speakers, and take part in a Q&A session. We're making it even easier to share your views this year. For the first time, you can attend online and vote digitally on the day. This means that if you can't attend in person, you can still cast your vote on all the resolutions. All votes for candidates standing for election to the council must be cast in advance. As always, you also can still vote in advance of the meeting if you can't attend. The advance voting deadline is 11.59pm on Friday the 28th of October. For full details of all the ways that you can vote, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. And those were some of the highlights from the Autumn News. Our next feature is from the Director-General, 
Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. We cannot all go to Bournemouth or Tintagel. We want some beautiful things for our daily enjoyment and near us, not on rare holidays, not for those who have money, but day by day as the surroundings for the poorest of your Manchester children, the most toil-worn of your Manchester men. So spoke Octavia Hill at the Manchester Art Museum's AGM in 1897, the land at Bournemouth and Tintagel were two early acquisitions of the National Trust, which had been founded just two years earlier. For Octavia, their benefit and the role of the museum were about providing beautiful places that everyone could enjoy and be inspired by. But more beautiful spaces were required, not just for the holiday or day trip, but to become part of everyday life. I'm delighted that 125 years on, the Trust is delivering Octavia's vision in the heart of Manchester by transforming the historic Castlefield Viaduct into a new, beautiful space for everyone to enjoy. It's a structure that Octavia might have campaigned about in the 1890s for bringing noise and pollution into the city, but it's now a place of calm, community and escape. Castlefield is a project that is very close to my heart. It's been an idea that people have spoken about for a long time, but was repeatedly passed over as too challenging, too complex. So to finally make that vision a reality is something worth celebrating. When you stand on top of the viaduct, it's hard not to dream a little of the future and the role that it could play to link green space and new routes across the city and beyond. It has been a huge team effort to get to this point, and I'm so grateful to everyone for their support, from the community partners and volunteers to players of People's Postcode Lottery, who have generously helped fund the first stage of the project. The transformation brings together all three core parts of the Trust's work. It protects our heritage, saving a structure that is a legacy of Manchester's industrial history. It creates a space for nature in the heart of the city. And it brings its own sense of beauty through both the planting and the magnificence of the iron structure itself. What I particularly love is that this project is just as much about creating something new as it is about looking after our past. This sleeping giant is being transformed into a new space for the community, finding new purpose and benefit. That we're working hand in hand with local groups and partners is the cherry on the top. The Trust's purpose isn't just about preservation. It calls on us to promote the preservation of places of outstanding natural beauty and historic interest. That word is important. It's about how we can inspire new generations to love nature, history and beauty and continue to serve the mission that motivated our founders. Octavia's speech in Manchester was set against a backdrop of rapid industrialisation. Cities like Manchester had boomed in size, development and accordingly, pollution. The Trust was created in response to these trends to protect and create spaces where people could enjoy nature, beauty and history. This mission has remained just as relevant today with the past two years particularly reminding us of the importance of being able to enjoy green spaces. Castlefield is one of many projects that we're working on to ensure more people can enjoy beautiful places wherever they are. For example, we're helping improve urban parks in Plymouth, supporting community heritage in Great Yarmouth, and bringing Blossom back to towns and cities nationwide. Octavia may not have expected nature and beauty to be found in the steel structures of a railway viaduct, but I hope that she'd be proud that we're still working to provide those beautiful things for our daily enjoyment in Manchester 
and across the UK. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director General. You can hear more about the Castlefield Viaduct in the next track. The Trust has committed to bringing nature, beauty and history to the doorsteps of many more people in cities and towns across the country. This year, plans have started to come to life on top of an old railway viaduct in industrial Manchester. At the heart of Manchester's industrial Castlefield region, a 130-year-old Victorian viaduct has lain dormant since the last train rattled across it in 1969, but things are about to change. High up on the viaduct, new trees are taking root, plants are bedding in and vines are twisting around the steel frame. After years in decline, Castlefield Viaduct is bursting into life with the creation of six new gardens to form a temporary urban garden in the sky. Each plot has been cultivated by a different partner. Led by the Trust, they've joined a pilot project to establish a new purpose for the city landmark. Together, the gardens form a new green space for residents, neighbouring communities and visitors, making habitats for nature and celebrating the area's industrial heritage. The pilot, which launched in summer this year, will be open to the public for a year. During that time, the Trust will be testing and trialling programming and events to get views from all members of the community about what the future of the viaduct could be. When you arrive in Castlefield, it feels like you're stepping back in time into somewhere really special, says Callum McGowan. He's the chair of Castlefield Forum, a local charitable organisation which champions Castlefield and conserves its heritage for the future. We are just off Deansgate, one of Manchester's busy through roads, and suddenly Castlefield's cobbles appear before you and lead you into a heady mix of Roman ruins, tangled transport methods and a rich tapestry of urban heritage. Though the area of Castlefield has its roots in Roman times, the viaduct was constructed in the heyday of the railway era, when Manchester was the fastest-growing city in the world because of its ever-increasing numbers of cotton mills, when the Bridgewater and Rochdale canals could no longer cope with the pace of the industry, a new rail network was developed and the viaduct built to serve it. Built in 1892 by Heenan and Froude, which also engineered Blackpool Tower in Lancashire, the viaduct linked canal, road and rail. For 77 years it carried heavy rail traffic in and out of the area, until it closed in 1969. It's remained dormant ever since, gently rusting away as the area developed around it. Today, vibrant Castlefield has close links to local cultural centres, Media City UK with its television, tech and media tenants, and Salford Quays, which is home to theatres, galleries and museums. But Castlefield is densely populated. Local residents, who largely live in flats and apartments, head to canals and cobbled streets for their fresh air. During the recent lockdowns especially, the shadow of the viaduct and its potential to provide space and escape became ever more enticing to the community. We've dreamt for years of developing a garden on the viaduct, but most of the plans were just pie in the sky, explains Callum. The mighty viaduct is such an imposing structure and has always seemed like a missed opportunity. Its time has finally come. Castlefield Forum's volunteer trustees have brought their long-held plans to life by developing one of the partner plots on the viaduct. 
The six gardens' four partner plots and two national trust gardens take up a little under half of the available space. Another section has been left untouched to provide a sense of how nature has reclaimed the viaduct since it was closed. The site will also have art installations and a community space for events. For their garden, Castlefield Forum have taken inspiration from the area's heritage architecture. We're choosing plants to mirror Castlefield's high skyscrapers and old mills, says Russell Eckersley, a local resident and trustee of Castlefield Forum. The plants will be layered in waves at various heights and will include lilies, salvias and grasses. We've chosen flowers in shades of blue to reflect the steel grey of the viaduct and reds for the bricks of the warehouses. We've kept nature in mind too, as insects love the prominent blue and lilac shades. Many local residents don't have gardens, so I think the effects of being able to go up to get some fresh air and enjoy nature is going to be felt far and wide. We're really excited about the legacy this garden will leave. Another of the gardens is being developed by Urban Wilderness, an arts organisation whose mission is to transform people and places through creativity, artworks and events. It was really important to us to have an authentic representation of youth voices from Manchester on our plot, says Laurel Gallagher, one of the founders of Urban Wilderness. We've been working with a group of creative young people aged between 16 and 26 who have also been supported by Manchester mental health charity 42nd Street. The creative collective of young people took part in nature walks and workshops to inspire their garden and help them decide what they needed from the space. During the workshops, members of the group shared that they felt their life in the city was very pressurised, in part due to its fast pace, but also because there is a lack of empty spaces where they're not expected to be doing something like buying, eating, drinking or working, says Laurel. They felt the spaces in Manchester were very directive, and so they wanted a place where they could just be. We hope that's what our garden will bring. The group has chosen to place a geodesic dome in the centre of their garden, a latticed, curved, semispherical space. It's meant to symbolise safety and calm within the city, and visitors can still enjoy the views of nature through the metal framework. For the greenery, the collective wanted native plants with medicinal qualities, which might help with health and well-being. They've chosen to plant nettle, which has benefits for the respiratory system, and as an antihistamine, Feverfew, which, as its name suggests, is said to ease fever, and lemon balm, which can help relieve stress and anxiety. Many of the group are keen gardeners, so it was important that they were able to bring the garden to life by helping with the planting in the summer, says Laurel. We hope they'll continue to take solace in their urban wilderness garden all year round. Of the other two partner plots, one is being created by the Science and Industry Museum, which has made a garden full of heritage plants, trees and flowers, and information about the viaduct's industrial heritage. The other, the City of Trees partner plot, is called Trees, Past, Present and Future. It features the trees, shrubs and flowers used during the Industrial Revolution, as well as those that will play a role in the city's response to climate change. The plans to develop the viaduct were finally put in motion thanks to the Trust's ambition announced by Director-General Hilary McGrady in 2019 to bring more green space to towns and cities as part of an urban places programme.
The Trust created this program with the goal of giving more people easy reach of quiet places with nature and wide open skies, as our co-founder Octavia Hill intended, says Duncan Laird, the Trust's head of urban places. As 80% of the UK population lives in towns or cities, we're working with local partners to improve urban green spaces and connections between towns and countryside. Eventually, we want everyone to have the opportunity to access nature, beauty and history locally. Castlefield Viaduct Sky Park is just one of the initiatives for greener and more heritage-rich urban places. At Bathhampton Meadows in Somerset, the Trust is developing the first of 20 green corridors alongside the local community, council and other local partners. The corridors will link urban centres to the countryside beyond by knitting together patches of green space to create a route to rural areas, explains Duncan. Among others, we're considering green corridor projects at Belfast in County Antrim, Plymouth in Devon and Cambridge. Urban heritage projects are planned too, such as in Birmingham, where a coalition of partners is supporting the local community to restore and give a future to the Grade 2-star-listed Moseley Road Baths. Back at Castlefield, the Trust and partners have even bigger hopes for its future, following the pilot year by working with local landowners. We're looking at options such as opening both ends of the viaduct to create a new through route for local people, says Duncan. From central Manchester, they'd be able to take a pleasant walk or cycle across the viaduct before following the path out next to the tram line and dropping down onto Pomona Island with its existing cycling and walking routes. This could be the start of the north end of a green corridor which would connect Manchester to the sweeping parkland of Dunham Massey, which is also in trust care. We'll need the support of people and funders to make phase two of the project possible and to secure the future of the viaduct. Callum from Castlefield Forum is optimistic. What better use of the old viaduct to save it from decline than to reimagine it as a green space for Manchester and beyond? It's this kind of legacy we are humbled to be a part of, and we can't wait to hear what people think when they get up there. For now, it's a place to relax, to contemplate, and to connect with nature. If it could provide a through route to both physically and metaphorically connect local communities, then that would be something to really celebrate. The Castlefield Viaduct project was made possible thanks to funding raised by players of People's Postcode Lottery and public donations which will cover two-thirds of the build costs. Thanks also to key collaborators National Highways Historical Railways Estate Team, supported by Manchester City Council, Greater Manchester Combined Authority, Transport for Greater Manchester and the local community, businesses and supporters. To book your free time ticket to visit the viaduct, share feedback on the pilot project or donate, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash castlefield dash viaduct. From organ music echoing through a grand mansion to the tinkling of a piano in a family cottage, Many of the houses in trust care would once have resounded with music amid the bustle of everyday life. Shanice Brooks from the University of Southampton and Weeb Katumalan from the Royal College of Music are on a mission to bring sound back into the country house through their Sounding Irvig project. This article is read by Neka Okoye. 
It feels familiar to explore the layers of history in trust houses through objects and images that bear witness to how people lived in the past. But what if you could visit a house with your ears instead of your eyes? As music academics, we often think through sound when we encounter new places. In our work with students, we emphasise how perspectives can change when we listen carefully to historical voices. The National Trust's collections of scores and musical instruments are an outstanding resource, providing unexpected insights into the rich but often hidden history of music making at home. But more than that, these wonderful properties preserve the spaces in which that music resounded. They encourage us to think about music as part of the unique experience of living in a place. We have been keen to bring sound back into heritage settings, and with the help of the Trust and generous funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, we had the perfect test case. Earthig, near Wrexham in North Wales. Built as a splendid gentleman's residence in the 17th century, the house passed to the York family in 1733, where it remained until the last owner gifted the now perilously dilapidated mansion and contents to the Trust in 1973. After a long process of stabilisation and rehabilitation, Earthig is now bursting at the seams with over 300 years' worth of objects from the exotic to the everyday. On our first visit in 2017, we were intrigued by the multitude of instruments on display. The former entrance hall had been converted into a music room in the 19th century, and one wall is almost completely taken up by an imposing organ bought in 1865 by the teenaged resident Philip York. A grand piano occupies a corner, while assorted oddities, from an elegant harp lute to a battered musical saw, appear on almost every surface. There was still more to see when we climbed the stairs to a storeroom where trust staff had discovered and sorted Earthig's musical scores, Colourfully illustrated sheet music covers jostled books of children's nursery songs and hymns for Sunday evening devotions, while easy beginner pieces for harp rubbed up against virtuoso piano show pieces. The collections at Earthig testify to vibrant musical life in British country houses and highlight Earthig's own unique sounding past. How, we wondered, could we make sense of its varied strands? How could we put music back into the wider soundscape of daily noises? And would this change how we understand Earthig today? Our project, Sounding Earthig, evolved in answer to these questions. It's a free online library featuring Earthig's collections made by leading historical performance experts along with trust staff and volunteers. We recorded it during some intense and extremely cold sessions in the house in January 2020 just before the pandemic imposed a lengthy silence. We aimed to resound not just the music room, but the whole house, from the basement servants' hall up to the attic bedrooms. We recreated and recorded once familiar noises, from the clang of servant bells to the clatter of antique laundry tools. Each recording comes with notes on the people and objects that contributed to Earthig's lively and noisy past. Sound allows you to tell new stories that have not been heard before. Earthig's soundscape has a consistent theme around the role of women in the house. 
The musical ambitions of teenager Anne Jemima York, 1754-1770, have left only a book of opera scores today. But family letters reveal much more. A dramatic tale of her secret harpsichord. Anne Jemima purchased it in 1769 from the leading London instrument maker, Jacob Kirkman. The instrument was an expensive luxury which Anne Jemima, her mother and brother, had to keep hidden from the wealthy uncle upon whom their fortunes depended. Anne Jemima's harpsichord is no longer at Erthig. It was replaced by a fashionable piano in the early 19th century. Fortunately, modern-day collector David Ponsford loaned us a 1766 Kirkman harpsichord exactly like hers, so we could record the same opera songs that helped Anne Jemima imagine the sounds of the London stage when far away at home in North Wales. Though teenage girls don't often figure in traditional histories of country houses, Anne Jemima's music-making had a decisive impact on her surroundings. The harpsichord's rich tones would have reverberated through Erthig's walls, and listening to it today, we can imagine Anne Jemima's delight in its power and beauty. Unlike the harpsichord, Erthig's harp lute is still in the house today, but it represents a lost voice all the same. This ingenious and highly decorative hybrid instrument enjoyed a brief moment of popularity early in the 19th century, but most people today have never seen one. The Erthig harp lute was brought to the house by Victoria Mary Louisa Cust, who arrived as the bride of Simon York in 1846. She was proud of the instrument, and by the end of the century, when it had become a rare curiosity, she was loaning it out to local museums and showing it off to visitors. As music historians, we had seen many images of harp lutes, but even we had never held one or heard one being played. For most Earthig volunteers and visitors, it was a mystery. We recruited Taro Takachi, one of the very few players of this instrument today for sounding Earthig, and it was a huge treat for us to hear it for the first time as we recorded pieces from Victoria's own books of harp lute music. While the musical skills of women of the York family are clear in the collection of scores, we were keen to know more about other residents of the house. If you have ever hummed or tapped your foot along to the sound your washing machine makes when it spins, or used a song to liven up a household chore, you know how music can weave itself into the fabric of daily activity. At Erthig, perhaps the maids in the laundry would also have sung, 
in Welsh, English or both, to the repetitive actions of scrubbing, turning and wringing the washing. By recording traditional songs in Earthig's dry laundry, we wanted to evoke one particular maid, Alice Jones, whose picture was included in a group photograph of servants at Earthig in 1912. The poem that accompanies the photograph by Philip York II praises Alice's voice, describing how her songs enlivened the house even when her job in the laundry meant she was often unseen. Alice was not the only domestic worker with musical talents. Matilda, Tilly, Bolter, the head housemaid, played the violin. We know about her from the memoirs of Louisa Scott, who married Philip York II in 1902. Louisa was herself a keen musician, likely inspired by her father, who played the cello. On his visits to Earthig, he would join forces with Tilly for duets. This story breaks down any straightforward association of high culture exclusively with property owners. For our sound library, we imagined Tilly playing her violin in the evenings in her attic bedroom, with the sounds wafting down the stairs to provide an evening hum for those in the drawing room. The final piece in our puzzle was to think about how music and daily sounds might interweave into the wider soundscape of the house. Sometimes the music itself suggests connections with daily sounds and activities. The wonderful velocipede gallop for piano evokes the pleasures of bicycle riding and links nicely to the many old bone shakers and velocipedes in Earthig's outbuildings. But we were keen to push further into the sounding life of Earthic and to ask people familiar with the house today to see the objects around them in their former role as noisy accompaniments to everyday actions. Here we had help from groups of volunteers and staff and the sound artist, Brona Martin, who joined us for two days of sound walking exercises. Groups armed with handheld recorders fanned through the house and outbuildings trying to imagine who had used each space in the past and what noises their daily activities would have created. Their recreation of these sounds forms the second major body of recordings in Sounding Earthig. Many volunteers told us that the experience made them think about an aspect of Earthig's past they'd never considered before. Our next challenge is to use it to bring sound back into Earthig today. In interpretations, that allow visitors to see and hear the house at the same time. Sounding Earthig reminds us that there is a soundtrack to the stories we tell about the past. Once you've become attuned to it, the experience of a historic house is never quite the same. You can search the database of sounds and music from Earthig at earthig.soton.ac.uk. I'll spell that. It's E-R-D-D-I-G. Dot S O T O N dot A C 
www.thepodcast.co.uk. You can listen to them online or download them to your own device. Writer and broadcaster Neil McGregor has a particular interest in how human history, represented through objects and places, is tied to the sort of people we want to be in the future. He's delivering the Trust's first Octavia Hill lecture at Osterley in West London in October. It will be recorded and available online. Neil's words are read by Glenn McCready, and I started by asking him what particularly interests you about historic cultures and collections. I was director of the National Gallery for 15 years, from 1987 to 2002, and then director of the British Museum from 2002 to 2015. In these roles, I was responsible for two extraordinary collections, which have from the very beginning been designed to be part of the public life of this country. I think in recent years, how we think about our history and what we've inherited has become more and more tied to the kind of society we want to be in the future. That has always been the case, but the link between how we see the past and how we want to shape the future seems more urgent and obvious now than before. Why did you want to deliver the inaugural Octavia Hill Lecture? I'm interested in the idea of the dispersed set of spotlights that the National Trust offers on different parts of our national history. If you put them all together, you wind up with a kaleidoscope of our history. The patterns change, different bits may be contradictory, but they're all part of one story. It's what distinguishes trust properties from museums, art galleries or universities. They offer a quite different kind of experience, where we can, in some sense, visit the past, think about our place in it, and what that past means to us now. That's why I think the trust is so important. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. What do you plan to talk about? National trust properties are set in their landscape, a particular place which has shaped them and which they have shaped. That relationship between the land that makes us and what we become is impossible to grasp in a museum or a gallery, but it is a critical bit of any national history, how the country made its people and how they made it. It's in every case a unique blend, because the landscape is local, but the works of art, the architecture and design, the collections, come from the whole world. The story of how these objects came to be put together is part of a global story, not just part of the story of that family, that house, or indeed of the UK. You can't really engage with the history of most trust properties without in some measure taking on the history of the world for the last 500 years. Do you have any examples from the National Trust? The 18th century terraces at Revo in North Yorkshire are a good place to start. The purpose of the terraces, which were built overlooking a magnificent ruined abbey, were to enable the viewer to look at the past and to enjoy it, both imaginatively and historically. It shows that we've been revisiting our own history for hundreds of years. Another striking example is the Temple of British Worthies at Stowe in Buckinghamshire, which features busts of famous historical figures from Alfred the Great to William Shakespeare. The figures show how selective all history is, as they were chosen to present a particular national and political narrative and offer a manifesto for the kind of future the patron wanted to see. Many of our collections are conversations between two cultures because of Britain's connections with so many other countries. These dialogues can tell of conflict, scholarship, collaboration or enjoyment. The collections of Kedleston in Derbyshire are a marvellous example of a long conversation 
between Britain and India, which speaks of deep conflict and also profound admiration. It's a collection that today has a new and powerful resonance with the British population of Indian heritage. What do you think is important about the connection between historic objects and people's lives today? The starting point is what these objects were originally made for. There is a history in the making of every object. But while we have only one life, objects have many, many lives. The intriguing question is, why did these objects from all over the world wind up in this one place? Who allowed it to happen? What were the systems of power that made that happen? Tracking an object through time, you start with what one gifted person made, but you're then looking at how it's been used, valued, preserved, collected and acquired. And when it's put together with other objects, it is changed by the contact with the new people and things around it. It has become part of a different conversation. The objects in a house are part of so many different stories. They constantly open new ways into thinking about the past and, of course, about the present. The great challenge is to allow as many of those histories as possible to be told, and by as many different voices as possible. This is the first in a series of annual lectures by guest historians and cultural commentators to be delivered at a National Trust property, then recorded and shared. Neil's inaugural lecture takes place at Osterley on the 5th of October, and an edited recording will be available soon after. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Octavia dash Hill dash lecture. The season of autumn is upon us with its fresh skies and golden leaves beckoning us outside. For some, there are barriers to spending time in the countryside. Here are the stories of people who have overcome obstacles and helped other people to do so too. First, let's hear from Shahrazad Umbreen, Marketing Director for the National Trust. Her words are read by Neka Okoye. Full disclosure, I'm more of an indoors person than an outdoors one. I love nature, but I like to appreciate its beauty through floral jewellery designs and colourful wildlife prints. Some of the landscapes I've enjoyed most have been on trips where I've been able to admire fields, mountains and deserts through a window. When I do go outdoors into nature, I love to experience the sounds and textures of the seasons, feeling the shiny outer shell of a conker in my hand, the crunch of a fallen leaf, and watching squirrels looking for acorns. I like nature the most when it jumps on my shoulder and surprises me, like the robin that swoops down for a silent chat, or the fragrance of tart apples fallen on the ground. As a child, I loved chasing fireflies in my granddad's garden at night. I'd imagine myself draped in a firefly ball gown in my make-believe ballroom. That was in Sahival in Pakistan many decades ago. It's true that although more people love the outdoors than not, many people who want to get out and about face barriers in doing so. These could be physical barriers, such as the nearest green spaces being too far away from their home, or emotional ones, such as a nervousness to explore, perhaps because of a lack of experience with livestock or concerns about dogs. Perhaps someone with a disability is worried about how they'll get around, or the availability of an accessible loo. Or maybe there is a financial barrier to visiting a garden where you need to pay to go in. I want to help remove some of these barriers. One of the reasons I work for the Trust 
is because of its genuine desire to welcome everyone, whoever they are, to the places in our care. And I like the fact that as marketing director, I'm helping to make that welcome a reality. I want to help make sure that more people know they can visit when they want and how they want. Not everyone knows that there are miles and miles of landscapes across hills, forests and beaches that are all free to access. There's also a lot of work going on here to support accessibility for people with disabilities, from all-terrain mountain trikes to rent at 75 trust places, to ways to enjoy places through audio experiences. We're listening to the needs of local people too, to better connect trust places to the communities they serve. We're bringing events and nature to urban spaces, such as by planting blossoming gardens in cities including Plymouth, Newcastle and London. The stories that follow are from people who have overcome barriers and grown to love the outdoors on their own terms. Whether you're someone who loves nature by enjoying it through a window, like me, or whether you prefer getting outdoors and splashing around in mud and puddles, there will be many places you can enjoy this autumn at the Trust and beyond. Haroon Mota set up the Muslim Hikers Group to encourage more people from his community to take their first steps into the outdoors. His words are read by Glenn McCready. I grew up in Coventry in a typical British Muslim family, and spending time in the outdoors just wasn't what our family did. I didn't even know about the existence of national parks until I was 15 and visited Snowdonia in Gwyneth in Wales. On a school trip, I'm so grateful my parents let me go, as it would have taken them out of their comfort zone to send me somewhere like that. That school trip gave me my first taste of the outdoors, and walking free in the mountains felt amazing. It was years before I'd get another chance to roam the countryside, when an elderly gentleman from my local mosque was gathering people to go for a hike to Scaffold Pike in the Lake District. I jumped at the opportunity to join. After that, I got the bug for keeping active and exploring the outdoors, and started tagging along any time someone was organising an adventure. One of those early trips that stuck in my mind was when I bumped into a group of Muslim women on a mountain who were hiking together for the charity Islamic Relief. I realised, to my surprise, that it was the first time I had happened upon another group of people from my own community in the outdoors. That meeting made me reflect on the fact that growing up, I didn't have Muslim or Asian role models in the outdoors or doing sports, so I didn't see people like me enjoying those activities. How can you learn about something if you don't know it exists? You can't be what you can't see. This thought led me to set up the Muslim Hikers Group, to help give other people in the Muslim community the confidence to explore in a way that makes them feel safe, confident and happy, and to inspire future generations to follow in their footsteps. It started off as a social media community in 2020. We shared stories of our outdoor adventures and spread the joy of the countryside with more Muslims. It wasn't long before we were organising monthly group hikes and encouraging people of all levels into the outdoors. I was amazed at how many people wanted to be involved with Muslim hikers right from the beginning. I think we filled a gap in the community which exists not just in the UK but worldwide. We've had people as far as Canada and Australia reach out to say they'd love to have similar groups in their country. Around 70% of our participants are female too. I think that is indicative of the needs of Muslim women, 
who can be even further removed from the opportunity to explore the outdoors for various cultural reasons. One of our most memorable group hikes took place earlier this year during Ramadan, the month of worship where Muslims dedicate 30 days to fasting from dawn to sunset. It's a time where our normal hobbies can get neglected. For me, that is being active outside, so I organized a hike in the country that would also celebrate the iftar meal, where we break our daily fast. I contacted the National Trust at Ilham Park in Derbyshire, and they went out of their way to accommodate us. We had 80 people from all over the country join for a three-and-a-half-hour hike, followed by an amazing outdoor banquet of biryani, samosas, chaiwala tea and desserts. It was a really special experience, and for the Trust to make us feel so welcome gives us the encouragement to try events like this again. By building relationships with the Muslim hikers and other groups across the UK, the Trust is helping empower communities like ours to come outside and create a culture of joy in the outdoors. Maya Rose Craig is grateful that her love of birds was cultivated at an early age by her parents and close-knit bird-watching community. Now she advocates for all children to get that same nature-rich start to life. Her words are read by Olivia Vinnell. I particularly love birds because they're so visible. They're easy to spot and identify, and you can see them everywhere. Whether you're in the countryside or the city, every landscape has birds. You don't even need to know what you're looking at. You can just watch the birds and listen to them. I'm a bird watcher as well as an environmental campaigner, and I definitely have my parents to thank for getting me into bird watching at an early age. My dad started it all. My mum, who is Bangladeshi, thought of herself as a city girl, but became interested in nature when she married. Thanks to my parents' early support, I became really active in the birding community as a child. During lockdown, I really got back into the garden birding that I'd loved then. I'm a big advocate for the LBJs, little brown jobs, the wrens, dunnocks and house sparrows. As I got older, I realised how lucky I'd been and I wanted other children to have similar experiences because I'd enjoyed them so much. I know not everyone has that same access or encouragement in their early years. When I was 13, I set up an organisation called Black to Nature to campaign for equal access to nature, drawing on my own experiences as a young non-white nature lover. My first step was to start a conversation with other organisations in the nature sector about access to the countryside. I ran a conference where we asked people in visible minority ethnic communities about the issues that were stopping them from spending time in the countryside. There were very tangible things, like the cost of buses and not having a car, or that they didn't own the right waterproof clothes or sturdy footwear. There were much broader social issues at play as well. People spoke about a cultural fear of dogs in a lot of communities, and how they felt scared taking their children somewhere that dogs were running around. Some mums explained that they didn't want their teenagers, especially their boys, hanging out in parks with their friends because they worried about them getting stopped by the police. The other half of what Black to Nature does, alongside pushing for change in the conservation and environment sectors, is more grassroots. We run nature camps and events for children between the ages of 6 and 18, many of whom have never seen the countryside before. The kids have a great time, and the experience shows them that going into the countryside is a good thing, and you can enjoy yourself. Some of them have never seen cows and sheep before. We have sometimes had negative reactions, though, 
The young boys especially sometimes have to deal with microaggressions if people view them as potential troublemakers. I think it is so important to encourage young people into the outdoors for their own well-being and for the good of the planet. Why should someone care about biodiversity loss if they've never experienced biodiversity? I think if we give children the time to experience nature, they're more likely to want to take care of it for themselves and for future generations. And you can take your pick of local spots to enjoy nature at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash walking. Did you know that alongside works of art, furniture and sculpture, the National Trust's collections include electric jewellery and Roman-era paw prints? Assistant curator Katie Knowles is author of 100 Curiosities and Inventions from the Collections of the National Trust, and she explains why. Her article is read by Neka Okoye. For thousands of years, human curiosity and creativity have shaped the world around us. A desire for knowledge and eagerness to experiment have led to discoveries and inventions that have transformed how people live, act and think, from meeting basic needs to helping make sense of a changing world. Human inventiveness has resulted in practical problem-solving, of course, but also in creative artistic experiments with unexpected materials and the emergence of new ideas. From the 19th century in particular, a surge of scientific and technological advancement brought many new discoveries and inventions, including synthetic materials, cars, radio, mass-produced medicines and electric lighting. Many of the world's oldest museums featuring evidence of human curiosity and inventiveness began as personal collections accumulated by wealthy families or individuals. In the 16th and 17th centuries, European collectors created cabinets of curiosities, Wunderkommer, or wonder rooms, to intrigue guests and show an understanding of the world around them. These could be cabinets, cupboards, or entire rooms that brought together natural and manufactured items from around the world for study and display. The original cabinets of curiosities were often status symbols designed to showcase influence, knowledge and wealth obtained through growing international trade and expanding colonial power. Some included fabrications such as unicorn horns, but from the 18th century onwards, there was an emphasis on science and evidence. A collection's organisation and interpretation typically reflected its owner's taste and identity, as well as changing intellectual interests and cultural understanding. Frequently, objects from global cultures or representing unfamiliar beliefs were displayed out of context. Curiosity, therefore, is a word with many connotations in the history of collecting and is here used in its broadest sense. Whether or not something qualifies as curious is a matter of perspective. In the future, the curiosity of our descendants is likely to be piqued by a 21st century mobile phone or a driverless car, even if they recognise the purpose of such inventions. Similarly, many items in trust collections today intrigue visitors because their once familiar functions are now obsolete. For instance, a plain glass bowl at Town End in Cumbria, designed to provide extra light for weavers, 
Today offers insights into the age before such marvels as artificial illumination. By contrast, some pieces were specifically designed to provoke curiosity or amusement, such as the unusual tortoise shell cat carved into the wall at Knight's Haze in Devon. Others, like the paw print of a dog on a Roman roof tile at Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire, are accidental creations, rare survivals, or ordinary objects with extraordinary connections. These days, it's unusual to see world-class museum collections in the homes where they were assembled, displayed, treasured, or used, but you can at National Trust places. The Trust looks after so many items that reflect the diversity of people who lived and worked in the houses, from physical cabinets of curiosities at Ulleronde in Devon and Peckover in Cambridgeshire to the entire house at Snows Hill in Gloucestershire, which was filled with objects by wealthy collector and artist Charles Paget Wade, 1883-1956. Many residents and owners of places now in trust care were early adopters of technology. Gadget-loving millionaire Julius Drew, 1856-1931, of Castle Drogo in Devon, used to proudly show off his cutting-edge electrical gadgets to his guests, and innovator William Armstrong, 1810-1900, made Cragside his Northumberland home into a technological showplace. Cragside was the first private house in the world to be lit by hydroelectricity, and its collection includes such curiosities as light-up electric jewellery. Meanwhile, industrial entrepreneurs were paving the way for factory production and instant worldwide communication. Not long after the patent on inventor Richard Arkwright's water-powered spinning machines lapsed in the 1780s, Samuel Gregg, 1758-1834, built Quarry Bank in Cheshire, using Arkwright's technology to power his cotton factory and revolutionise his textile business. Italian inventor Guglielmo Marconi, 1874-1937, trialled early radio technology on the Lizard in Cornwall and St Catherine's Point on the Isle of Wight, while at Laycock Abbey in Wiltshire, William Fox Talbot, 1800-1877, was busy inventing a new photographic process, capturing and fixing images on paper. Elsewhere, creative thinkers were taking inspiration from what they saw around them. At Bateman's in East Sussex, you can see a necklace dreamt up by Rudyard Kipling, 1865 to 1936, for one of his just-so stories brought to sparkling life by a talented maker. Some of the objects in trust care are more practical, early examples of everyday items, such as a patent hairdryer at Whittick Manor in the West Midlands and a portable shower at Erthig in Wrexham. Thankfully, sprinklers and fire extinguishers have replaced Erthig's ineffective Victorian glass water grenades. The Trust looks after some of the most significant fine art and heritage collections in the world. Together, the collections represent the history of social and technological changes that have affected us all. Now let's hear about six curiosities from the Trust's collections. Our first object is a tile fragment from Chedworth Roman Villa in Gloucestershire. A Roman dog quite literally left its imprint on the history of Chedworth Roman Villa over 1,600 years ago, it walked across a 12.5-centimetre fragment of a clay tile 
unwittingly preserving its paw print for posterity. Dogs had various roles in Roman Britain, including hunting or guarding property and livestock. Some would also have been kept as pets. Archaeologists haven't established which breed of dog made this paw print, but other surviving roof tiles found at Chedworth show prints from deer, pigs and sheep, as well as one impression of a Roman sandal. The marks reveal something about the environment in which tiles were made, including the sorts of domestic and wild animals roaming nearby. Chedworth was a particularly grand example of a Roman villa, with the luxury of underfloor heating, window glass and a tiled roof. Makers often laid out their handmade clay roof tiles to dry in the sun before firing them in a kiln, so the tiles were vulnerable to footmarks and paw prints. Chedworth's tiles might have been produced in a maker's yard in nearby Corinium, modern-day Sirencester, or made on site. Our next item is Kipling's necklace from Bateman's in East Sussex. How the Alphabet Was Made, one of the Just So stories, 1902, by Rudyard Kipling, 1865-1936, tells the story of how a girl named Taffy and her father Tegumai created the first alphabet. Tegumai made a magic necklace of the letters, using his tribe's most precious beads and objects. Kipling illustrated the necklace in the story himself. Sir Percy Bates, 1879-1946, chair of the Cunard Cruise Line and a director of the Morning Post, was a friend of Kipling. Bates decided it would be entertaining to commission a jeweller to create a necklace based on Kipling's drawing. Bates and Kipling had a joke where they pretended Bates had taken the original necklace from Kipling's house, Bateman's, for repair. Kipling played along, describing the necklace as one of the most beautiful pieces of Neolithic art that has ever been produced. Bates then secretly arranged for a jeweller to create the necklace from Kipling's illustration. It's made from wood, stone, metal and organic materials. He brought it to Bateman's in a special presentation case in 1928. Kipling described the gift as absolutely the prettiest and cleverest bit of work I've ever seen. Next up is wearable electric jewellery at Cragside in Northumberland. You're preparing to entertain guests at your home, Cragside, where one of your family members is the technological pioneer and inventor William, first Lord Armstrong, 1810 to 1900. It's somewhere between 1880 and 1900. You dress and select your adornments. So far, so familiar. But then you slip a small battery in your pocket or hair to power the miniature four-volt bulb inside each of your coloured glass jewels. You step out and dazzle your visitors as the tiny lamps create the appearance of sparkling diamonds and rubies. Electric jewellery was developed by French engineer Gustave Trevet. 1839-1902, who was known for his electrical and miniaturization skills. His patented inventions include a battery-powered wearable headlamp for an ear, nose and throat specialist, luminous fountains and an early electric boat. He later expanded into electric jewellery for use on stage. In the 19th century, decorative electricity was a novelty, and rather dangerous too, as the heavy batteries could leak or overheat. Nonetheless, jewellers developed hair adornments, scarf pins and tiaras with an average battery life of around 30 minutes. Cragside's collection of electric jewels was made in London 
and includes a walking cane with a battery-powered light on its handle. And now let's hear about the carved stone corbel at Knight's Hayes in Devon. If you stand beneath the staircase gallery at Knight's Hayes and crane upwards, you'll spot a strange creature with a cat's head and a tortoise's body seemingly emerging from the wall. It's a visual pun, a picture puzzle known as a rebus, and it represents a tortoiseshell cat. Its designer, William Burgess, 1827-1881, had a vivid creative imagination inspired by his passion for the art and architecture of the Middle Ages. His designs are full of animals and plants. Other gallery corbels here include a monkey clutching its long tail and a chick emerging from its shell, menaced by a rat. He would have been familiar with the widespread medieval use of the rebus, since this sort of visual play on words was often used to represent family names and in heraldry. The 17 by 11 centimetre stone cat was probably modelled by sculptor Thomas Nichols and made by one of his team of specialist carvers. There's no evidence that it was a tribute to a particular family cat. It's more about Burgess's sense of humour. Ultimately, the Heathcote Amories found Burgess's interior designs for their new house too extravagant. Burgess's work was covered up by successive generations of the family and has been gradually rediscovered, restored and recreated since Knight's Hayes was given to the Trust by Sir John Heathcote Amory in 1972. Our next item is the water grenade at Erthig in Wrexham. A prayer in the servant's passage at Erthig begins. May heaven protect our home from flame. Fire was of great concern to country house owners at a time of candlelight, timber structures and varying standards of rural fire brigade. Consequently, many took precautions, ranging from sand buckets to fire drills and, in some cases, water grenades. Patented in 1883 in Chicago, USA, the hardened star hand grenade was invented to help homeowners combat domestic fires by, according to contemporary adverts, hurling the curious blue-ribbed glass bottles into a fire. The mixture of water, salt and chemicals inside was supposed to boil and produce fumes that could smother the flames. Despite glowing testimonials, the grenades were often no more effective than sprinkling water on the flames. However, they were sold by the dozen in the 1880s, and there are over a hundred dotted around Erthig, purchased by owner Simon York III, 1811-1894. Erthig has suffered several minor fires through its history. They were all safely extinguished by estate workers, but, perhaps fortunately, there is little evidence that York's early fire extinguishers were used. Later generations of the family took further precautions against domestic fires, including fitting metal ceilings in the early 20th century. And finally, the Weaver's Bowl at Town End in Cumbria. There is no intricate detail or hidden decoration on this simple hand-blown glass bowl, but fill it with water and place it in front of a burning candle and it reflects light around a room. Although a poor substitute for natural light, Weaver's bowls were a simple and innovative way to make a single candle last longer and brighten a room enough for 19th century agricultural workers and farmers to work on into the evening as daylight faded. This was a time when the textile industry relied on hand weaving at home, supplementing the income of farmers and farm workers 
such as the tenants of the middle-class Brown family of Town End, who owned this particular bowl. The Browns themselves, or their servants, are more likely to have used its extra light for embroidery or mending clothes. Assistant curator Katie Knowles is the author of 100 Curiosities and Inventions from the Collections of the National Trust. It's the latest in a collection series that also includes 125 treasures, 100 paintings and 50 great trees of the National Trust. The curiosities and inventions featured here are all on display at their property this autumn, so do look out for them on your next visit. Meanwhile, there's plenty more to explore at your leisure on the collection's website, nationaltrustcollections.org.uk. Steve Hindle turned his hobby into a dream job when he took on the role of Grassland Fungi Project Officer at Hardcastle Crags in Calderdale in West Yorkshire last year. This piece is read by Glenn McCready. I used to have a juggling shop in Manchester. I taught circus skills and made circus equipment. Natural history has always interested me, though, particularly plants and fungi. Walking in the countryside with my dog, I'd use a pocket guide to start figuring out what things were. Before long, I'd become the person to ask about fungi. I don't have a formal qualification in ecology or conservation. When the role of grassland fungi project officer came up at Hardcastle Crags, I called to offer help in a voluntary capacity, and the countryside manager told me that I should apply. A year later, here I still am. The UK is a world stronghold for grassland fungi, including wax caps, pink gills, earth tongues and fairy clubs, which predominantly grow in low-nutrient grassland. Several sites the Trust cares for in Calderdale are internationally important. They thrive here because the soil is not very fertile, and it hasn't been intensively farmed. In places it's been undisturbed for centuries. Working with the Calder Rivers Trust and local farmers and landowners, we hope to help farmers manage their land in a way that will protect these habitats long into the future. The mushroom season is a really busy time for me. It usually peaks between September and November. A team of volunteers and I spend each day surveying. Everyone spreads out with flags and marks the fungi they spot. Then we go back and identify everything, make a record and move on to the next field. I'll often work into the evenings, doing research and using a microscope to check any species we weren't able to identify in the field. A single teaspoon of soil may hold up to 10 kilometres of fungal material. As some grassland fungi grow, they draw carbon out of the atmosphere through plants. Ancient grasslands have been doing this for centuries, acting as carbon stores and quietly helping tackle climate change. At Hardcastle Crags, the soil is black because of all the carbon it contains. Fungi play an important role in the ecosystem. They form vast underground networks, passing nutrients between plants. They break down dead plants, insects and dung, releasing nutrients and filter the water passing through soils, which improves water quality. Because fungi only have a single cell wall between them and the surrounding environment, they are particularly efficient at fighting off bacteria. Some of our antibiotics come from fungi, and scientists are discovering new biochemicals in them that they think might unlock cures and medicines in the future. There's still so much we don't know about them. I always have a huge smile when I'm hunting for fungi, it's like finding treasure. One day you can see a huge patch in a field 
and the next day it's vanished as though it were never there. To find out more about the Grassland Fungi Project, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash hardcastle dash crags. Many fungi are rare and some are poisonous. Please help us look after them by not picking or eating any you find. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this autumn. Please make sure to check individual property websites or the National Trust app, or call the property, for the latest information before you visit. Set in Ireland's Orchard County, apple growing is at the core of the history and heritage of our dress house in County Armagh. Join an apple picking Sunday on the 2nd, 9th or 16th of October in our dress house's charming orchards and take some home to enjoy. Take part in a sensory nature club at Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire. Designed to be accessible and autism-friendly, these sessions give you the chance to experience the sounds and feel of nature, with indoor and outdoor options depending on the weather. Sessions will take place every Monday throughout autumn from 11am to 12 noon. Step into a Narnia-inspired world this winter at Mottisfont in Hampshire. Artworks by Pauline Baines, the original artist for C.S. Lewis's famous children's books, are on display at Mottisfont's gallery, while decorations around the house and grounds bring scenes and characters from the lion, the witch and the wardrobe to life. Pick up an activity trail to keep little ones entertained. The exhibition runs from the 26th of November to the 8th of January. Long, dark nights mean more time to enjoy the dazzling illuminations lighting up many trust places from November 2022 to January 2023. Wrap up warm and head out to Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire, where colourful lights will set the trees aglow and dance on the water beside the old mill. At Kingston Lacey in Dorset, the tunnel of light makes the ideal spot for a group photo with family and friends, and there are flames in the fire garden. If you're visiting Gibside in Tynham Weir, pick up a treat from the street food vendors who'll be serving festive drinks and snacks to keep you warm along the trail. Find events near you and book at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash winter dash lights. And here is a taster of just some of the Christmas events taking place at Trust Properties this winter. From the 1st to the 24th of December, 11am to 2.30pm, visitors to Cannons Ashby in Northamptonshire can enjoy decorations and celebrations inspired by the tales of Camelot, which sparked the imaginations of Dryden family writers who once lived here. Immerse yourself in an 18th century Christmas at Castle Ward in County Down from the 2nd to the 4th and the 9th to the 11th of December. You'll find the servants busy preparing festive food, while upstairs the halls are wreathed in garlands and greenery. The Long Gallery at Powys Castle in Powys is decked out for a 16th-century style Christmas, with holly, ivy and dried oranges. Follow in the footsteps of the Tudor ladies who once lived here. To find out more about activities at Trust Places this autumn, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash what's dash on. Well, that's all from us this autumn issue. I hope you've enjoyed it, and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Autumn 2022 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. 
The readers in this edition were Glenn McCready, Neka and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding, and all items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed via the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370. Or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. For more information on this and other National Trust podcasts, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.